Welcome to Lead Pods, the official leadership podcast from USMB for pastors and church leaders, where our goal is to increase our impact together. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 36 of the USMB Lead Pods. My name is Matt Ayersman, and I'll be your host again for t- today for a very interesting conversation. Uh, so today I'm joined by Dr. David Stevens. David is a professor at Tabor and he is heading up their new master's program that is looking at trauma and neurology, specifically for education and teachers. Very, very fascinating conversation. And David is, I admit this several times throughout the episode today, but I want to go take one of his classes because the way that he describes this stuff is so fascinating, so interesting, and also just gives me at least a deeper appreciation for how God wired our brains and how you know, chemicals inside of our brain affect our day-to-day lives, especially with stress and trauma. I found this to be super, super fascinating. So especially if you have any kind of education background or if you um, are in leadership at your church, I think you will find some of this very helpful and hopefully it might kind of whet your appetite to learn even more because I think this uh, study of neurology and how our brain works and how that affects our day-to-day lives is super, super fascinating and would be good for all of our leadership to understand that a little bit better. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. It's different from what we've tackled before, but I think you'll enjoy hearing about it. So we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then let's dive right into a really fascinating conversation with Dr. David Stevens. Tabor College is a proud sponsor of USMB Lead Podcasts. Starting this summer, Tabor is launching a Master of Education program in neuroscience and trauma. The degree is designed to help leaders such as teachers and youth workers to understand the trauma of the children and students that they are working with. The best part about the program is that it is being offered 100% online. For more information, go to tabor.edu backslash adult backslash med. All right, my friends, we've got a topic I'm really excited to dive into, and it's one that I will be learning along with you because it's one that I don't know much about. But today we're we're joined by Dr. David Stevens. He is a professor at Tabor who is heading up a new uh, major, a new area in their in their education department that I'm I think is just excellent. So I'm excited to share it with you. So, Dr. David Stevens, thank you for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I always love an opportunity to talk about this stuff. So. I should be thanking you. Thanks. Oh, no, it's, it's great to talk with you. And I think we'll all learn a lot today. So Tabor just recently started this new major, this Master of Education, specifically focusing on neuroscience and trauma, which I think it's super interesting. And it, it totally makes sense that teachers and educators need to know this stuff. But I think it often goes kind of under the radar and forgotten. So real quick, let's start. Tell me your background. How did you get into this? So I got into this, actually it started when I was teaching fifth grade years ago, about 1998 is when it really dawned on me that I wasn't able to deal with kids in my class who had suffered trauma. And I didn't understand really the neuroscience behind any of that. And so I started doing my own studies as to cognition and what cognition really is, how kids learn best. Through my own studies, I realized that all my teacher training should have been thrown out the door. We shouldn't have done anything the way I had done it because I'd been trained to learn the way that it's perpetual. I, you know, I came up through the school system and now I was teaching the same way that I was taught, which is ineffective. And so through all of those studies, I just got really excited about the neuroscience and started doing probably 10 years of my own studies. And um, this was after I'd already gone to college, already done my master's. Then I realized that there were, it got to the point where I wanted to do my doctorate in neuroscience, but that that did not help me for my goals to become 
you know, a leader in college. Mm -hmm. So I did my, so I went to USC and did my doctorate in higher education administration, but then went back to Harvard to do postdoc work in neuroscience. And so at that point, I realized we need to start teaching teachers differently about how the brain works, what are the best environments, and then what do we do for every individual brain, because everybody's brain is different and depends mm -hmm. on their own experiences and their own knowledge base. Yet here we all, we teach to one bar, even when uh -huh. I give a syllabus to college students right now, we teach to one bar, here's what you got to do to get your A. If you're low, too bad. If you're high, get ready to be bored. And that's, that's kind of the system we all went through. Right. Like if you went into my math class tomorrow in my algebra class, you would be going, what is going on in here? Because you'd see five different groups doing their own thing. And all I'm doing is walking around the room, kind of coaching them a little bit. There is no lecture. There is no direct instruction. They just do their own thing. And that's a whole different podcast because if we talk about the neuroscience of discovery and how it becomes like a drug, because you can get addictive to the dopamine and the serotonin and the chemicals that come from exploration and discovery. Hmm. So all of that stuff, all of these things I was learning about, learning and cognition transformed everything I thought about education. Hmm. And when I went and I was teaching at Pepperdine at the time and wanted to transform our teacher training program. And I had a 100% no vote at a faculty meeting. And wow. that was really frustrating for me to realize that I'm in a system where nobody wants to progress. Nobody wants to change what we're doing, even if it's based on science. But a friend of mine at Azusa Pacific loved it, asked me to come do a, a talk. And I did a talk and the faculty all bought into it. And so they brought me there and I, we just revamped their entire program. Hmm. It wasn't just me. There were a whole bunch of us that just bought into this whole neuroscience. Uh, the the uh, SPED teachers, special education teachers, really bought into it. Okay. Uh -huh. So there was a, a foundation of us building these foundation courses in neuroscience and the rest of the teacher preparation came out of that. And I had this idea for a master's program that I wanted to start. And AP was going through some financial things. So starting a new program was not in the works there. Just, everything just kind of worked out for me. It was like God's plan for my life. I wanted to get out of California. My wife wanted to get out of California. And I was looking for a place where I could start a master of education in neuroscience and trauma. Okay. And the day I put my CV online, I got a call from admin here at Tabor. And wow. I said, honey, you want to go to Kansas? And for some reason, she said yes. <laughs> and, she, and so we came here and I spent my first year as the associate dean and department chair of the education department. And part time, I was working on actually putting my idea for the master's program on paper. Hmm. And long story short, I actually coming to to uh Kansas was difficult for us because my wife couldn't get a job. And I'm sorry if I'm taking too much time, but it's actually kind of a cool story because my we, I resigned. So last year, about uh, March 2020, I actually resigned. I told uh, oh, wow. admin, I can't afford to stay here. My wife can't get a job here. Hmm. And so it was a bummer because I had I, the master's got, I just put it back in my head and said, forget it. We'll do, do it somewhere else. Hmm. And we were planning on moving back to California and Suddenly, my wife gets a job, and I came back in a groveling, and I said, "Hey, my wife got a job, but now we can't stay unless I have a job." Oh uh, yeah. And yeah. the president said, "Well, why don't you just work on this master of education full time?" And I was like, "Perfect, that's what I wanted." I was actually going to ask for that, and he okay. suggested it. So yeah, that's awesome. I told my wife, and she got tears in her eyes because she was thinking, "Wow, how things work out?" Because I I didn't want to be the associate dean and the department chair and work on the master's program. That's too much for me. Yeah. And now I'm doing what I love. And here's what's miraculous about this. About a year ago, we were putting this on paper. And here we are a year later, we've got our first cohort of 34 students in yeah. their second term. 
That's awesome. That just doesn't happen. I mean, the fact that we were able to get it going that quickly and then have that much interest just doesn't happen. So we wanted eight to 15 students. Mm-hmm. And that was our goal. If we could get 15, we considered it a big success. And we have two cohorts of 17 in our first group, which That's... is just, you know, and, and actually it's both amazing and it's sad because that mm-hmm. just shows that there is such a need and teachers see this need yeah. trained to help that many students who are suffering from trauma and stress yeah. induced mm-hmm. symptoms. So when I look at it from that, I think, wow, we're actually providing yeah. a huge need to the community. Yep. But it's really sad that it's that bad that we have such a large first cohort. Well, we've talked on the show before that I'm grateful that we live in an area right now where I know it's different kind of, it's sort of related, like mental health and trauma and um, depression and anxiety. People are way more open than they were a generation ago. And I think there's going to be yeah. so many good things that come out of that. I think so real so. quick, let's, let's, let's take a step back real quick. Let's just define some terms so we're all on the same page. Give a brief overview of neurology and trauma. How do you define those for, for dummies like me who haven't studied this? So I would, I would define the neurology as not only the physiology anatomy of the brain, but also cognition and how the brain works. And those okay. are really two separate categories. So we, in our program, we, we actually, we separate them out. So I taught the first physiology anatomy course so that students understood what we're talking about when we talk about different areas of the brain. And okay. yeah. We had a cognitive psychology class at the same time. So that's, that's more of the, how this is, it was the intro to how the brain works mm-hmm. and students are now going to go into a course called neuro, uh, cognitive neuroscience, where they're going to put it all together. Everything okay. that they've learned in those two courses now kind of comes together. And so now if we're going to talk about neurology, we're talking about not just the physical mechanics of the brain, but how the brain interacts with other areas of the brain and then how traumatic events and stress affect a healthy functioning brain. Okay. Uh-huh. And then we talk about what happens over time if mm-hmm. nothing is done to intervene. That may seem pretty simplistic and it is, but when you ask what is neurology, we had a seven week course just to teach our students what that is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, right. It's complex. And again, I'm, I don't, I don't have, I have no background knowledge of this. So if I'm hearing you right, so trauma, stress, anxiety, can like physically change your brain. Is that, is that true? It does physically change your brain. So let's, let me step back and kind of give you kind of why that's important to know, because our, the design for our brains is awesome. I mean, the, the coolest thing about the feedback I got from students after the first term is they had this brand new appreciation for the complexity of the way they were designed. Yeah, yeah. And they had never even considered the fact that they could have been made in such a complex and beautiful way. Mm-hmm. So here's the beauty of our brain. We are designed so that we have two, two major chemicals that are at work when we encounter a stressful event. Okay. And so we're designed to actually function in a, a utopia, a beautiful world where nothing goes wrong. So even if we lived in paradise and I'm walking along and I see a tiger crouched in the grass, Mm -hmm. the beauty of my brain is there are chemical stress hormones and the the main one, cortisol, floods my system and tells my body to do all kinds of things. My eyes dilate, uh, my Mm -hmm. blood pressure changes, my heart rate increases, blood goes from my stomach to the muscles that are needed. And now I can bolt and I can go into fight or flight. And that's good. Because mm-hmm. if my brain were not designed to do that, I couldn't survive even in a paradise. Yep. So here's the other part that's beautiful. Once I flee the situation, 
all of those chemicals that made these good things happen for me to flee. Well, if they stick around, they start doing damage. They do real damage. Mm. In fact, if they stick around too long, they'll start to scar the blood vessels in my brain. Cortisol does wreaks havoc on the brain when it's in there for too long. Okay. So it would just, if we didn't have a way of cleaning that out, we would have major problems and mm. you would actually scar to the point of having a stroke if it didn't take care of itself. Wow. So the beauty is we have brain derived neurotropic factor. We just call it BDNF. And so this chemical comes in and it's like dishwasher detergent for the brain. It just okay. comes in and cleans out all of the bad stress hormones, which did a good thing but wreak havoc. So now they clean it all out and you go back to your relaxed state. And that's the way you're supposed to be. Okay. <laughs> that's the way we're supposed to exist in this relaxed state where all of the chemicals are where they're supposed to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And so that's a beautiful design. But the problem is we now live in a world where we have to deal with chronic stress mm -hmm. and trauma causes stress in ways where these harmful chemicals don't leave the brain. They actually stick around for too long. Mm. One of the really scary things is um, if cortisol hangs around too long in the brain and other stress chemicals hang around too long in your brain, it will actually shut off the gene that produces BDNF. So you won't even have the good chemicals to come in and wash it out. Wow. So you just have to naturally over days and days and days, wait for it to slowly kind of be washed out through sleep. Hmm your body's other natural ways of cleansing it but that's that's unhealthy that's actually yeah. bad things happen in the brain when that happens wow and so that's what this program is kind of all about we're dealing with the kids that are in situations or we're training teachers to deal mm -hmm. with kids who are in these situations where they're not able to deal with the stress in healthy ways where it becomes harmful physically harmful yeah wow and that actually doesn't usually present the physical harm doesn't present itself until a until these young kids get into the thirties, forties, and fifties. Really? Okay. That's what's really bizarre about all of this huh. is um, there's this whole process mm -hmm. where a kid, I'll just, I'll use an example of a kid who's got a, a verbally abusive father. Okay. Yep. Constantly telling the kid he's an idiot and not smart. Mm -hmm. Yep. This is one of the, this is lower level because there are, there are lots of levels of abuse. Mm -hmm. So if a kid has a verbally abusive dad, he believes he's an idiot because he's been told for so long he comes yeah. to school thinking he's an idiot and there's uh learned helplessness there there's no there's no reason for him to try because in his mind he's an idiot right. so one of the things we can do as teachers is knowing what we know about the brain neuroplasticity is kind of the key that is we're all about neuroplasticity because if our brains didn't have the magic power to actually redirect and rechange and reprogram itself and rewire itself, th there would be no point in having a program like this. Kids would be yeah. helpless. There'd right. be nothing we could do to help them. Mm -hmm. There'd be no reason for therapy. Yeah. Um, there'd be no reason for psychiatry because neuroplasticity and the way our brains are designed, it's really pretty awesome. Yeah. So because of neuroplasticity, I can now take this student in my class and say, I realize you think you're not smart, but let me show you something and give them a problem that's difficult and say, I want you to try this. And he fails. Mm -hmm. Now I want you to try again and, and show me that you can actually figure this out. So you got to find something just above this threshold and figure it out. And then when he figures it out, you celebrate it. See, yeah. I told you, yeah. I, I told you you could do it. Mm -hmm. Smart people do things like this. Yeah. Now he's not going to believe it in one day. <laughs> um, we know that it takes, you know, 
20 to 30 days for a kid to really start believing he can do that. Then it takes more something like 20, 20 to 30, 40 more days for him to really start believing he's doing that because he's smart. Yeah. Yeah. And then it takes 20 to 40 more days for him to actually believe it to the point where he starts dreaming in him, in his new self. Wow. Yeah. And what's cool about that is there with today's technology, we can measure it. We can show yeah. that I could show that kid in his brain through mm-hmm. MRI pictures of his brain and say, here's where you believed you were stupid. There is a very strong neural connection there. Yeah. Now what, watch what happens over the next 40 days. It starts to fade. The actual mm-hmm. connection is, is fading away. And there's a new connection being made over here where he's got this new belief. Yeah. And over that, that three-month period where he starts to dream in his new self, those connections, mm-hmm. the old connections disappear. It doesn't show up on an MRI anymore. Yeah. Wow. That's the bizarre thing about the way our brains work. He's got this new belief. And it doesn't matter if you can truly do that. And that doesn't happen over three months. Mm-hmm. He just can do this over a school year, though. You can, t- you can make a kid in one school year believe that he's smart and it won't matter what his dad tells him anymore. Yeah. That's nuts. That is bizarre. That power that teacher has to help a kid, if you can identify it, is nuts. Yeah. And I think that's where my passion for this program came from is because teachers, teachers don't realize that that's, if a kid comes to school and he's lethargic or disruptive, mm-hmm. that's the, that's a teacher's nightmare because that throws all of your classroom management into a tissue. You just, it's hard to control a class when there's one kid that's yeah. a behavior problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if the kids becoming a behavior problem because dad's abusive at home and I punish the kid for it, I've only added to a stress, right? I've only just caused more stress hormones in this kid's life and I'm causing damage. Yeah. So teaching teachers how to recognize behaviors, that's a big deal. And, and Uh now they're coming to us because they see the behaviors they're paying attention. That's Mm -hmm. the, first of all, and the other thing that's interesting is I've got 32 women in this program and two men. Mm. women are really good at paying attention in the classroom to behaviors and men are not. Yeah. I need more men in this program because it's yeah. teachers that actually need this, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that my passion for this program kind of comes out of that. There are so many teachers that are actually unbeknownst to them doing damage to students yeah. and to the kids that need them the most. Yeah. It's crazy to think that just teaching kids or I'm guessing teaching ourselves, even as adults, how we see ourselves can actually change our physical brain matter. Like that's just mind boggling to to think about, but it's, it's very cool. The entire program is kind of based on a Romans 12 model being a Christian school. Yep. One of my favorite things is it comes from being transformed by the renewing of your brain. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of what I just talked to you about with that boy as an example is it doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen as a miracle overnight. Well, not in this program anyway. Uh Uh-huh. It comes, it's a process of yep. daily renewing your mind and focusing on truth. Yeah. Now it has to be focused on truth because if you tell a kid he's smart every day for six months, it may have an effect, but mm-hmm. if you don't prove that he's smart, put him in situations where he can see that he's smart, yep. he's not truly going to believe it. So it needs to be right. based on truth. Yep. So if somebody feels like they're worthless, I can have, I can tell them, Hey, listen, all you got to do is focus on God's truth about you and how much he loves you and how special you are. Do mm-hmm. it daily for three months. And I want you to come yep. back and tell me what effect it has. Yeah. Telling you it changes people. Yep. Just simple activities like that, because you start to realize, oh man, here's the truth after a few days. Now I'm starting to believe that that's the truth. Now I know it's the truth. Now I have, my brain has been completely rewired and we can physically see it and measure it. And that's the bizarre part. That's what I was just going to say is I'm glad we live in a time when we can actually prove some of this stuff. I think, I think we've kind of 
quote unquote known some of this for a long time or people think it could work, but now we can actually point to proof that this stuff actually works, which is awesome. I keep telling my students, you know, it's about time neuroscience caught up with scripture. (laughs) Yeah, really. Also, Paul was like the first neuroscientist. He didn't even know it. Some of the stuff. (laughs) Yeah, you just you can go look at the science behind it. Like, oh man, he didn't even yep. realize what he was saying. I don't think, but still. right. <laughs> well, okay. Speaking of that, so you mentioned that like our brains were were designed to have these chemicals and they're helpful, but too much can cause problems. So I'm curious, do you, what's your opinion? Or maybe there's some research. Are people more stressed, more traumatic? Do we have more of these chemicals today than a few generations ago? How are you seeing that play out? Yeah, I, I and, and that that comes down to opinions because when we have these discussions in class a lot, because personally I feel like society has evolved so fast that our brains can't keep up with it. Our brains, the, God's design for the brain's elasticity and evolution of the brain is also amazing. Yeah, but our brains were developed designed for a time when we exercised more, we did more with our feet. Yeah. You go back to before when we, when we used horses for transportation, people were physical. Right. Now you come to, you look at what technology has done. Our brains have not been able to keep up with the fact that we are inert and sit down. I'm sitting right now. Yep. Me too. Yep. And I'll be spend most of my day before a computer and which actually makes, always makes me feel guilty because I know the neuroscience of exercise. And I'm always saying, man, I need to do my work on a treadmill. I need to be more yeah. active. I need to stand and at least, mm-hmm. but we don't, we, we, we've just kind of, gotten used to these lives and, and it's not good for our brains mm-hmm. you know, our brains work optimally when we're walking that's yeah. actually the, the 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 speed with which the blood goes through our brains while we walk is considered optimal okay wow and they've done studies like they did at the googleplex they did a really cool study i'm trying not to bird walk too much but that's it's a really a it it just kind of proves that we are not meant to be dealing with the kind of stresses and the kind of lives we live today Right. Complex. They had a group that was work, walking on treadmills. They had a group that was walking around kind of randomly around the room. And then they had a group that was sitting around a board table and they had a board meeting that way. Okay. And the group that walked around kind of aimlessly, but didn't stop walking while they had their conversations scored 60% higher th- than the group that sat at the board table when they were wow. asked questions about the conversation. Yeah. That just shows right there that we need to start looking at school differently. Right. Right. The way we live differently because yeah throw in the fact that now we have mortgages and things that cause people the kinds of stress we didn't have a thousand years ago, right? A mortgage that somebody can't pay or is barely paying every month causes chronic stress and stress in a way that is unhealthy that BDNF can't come in and wash out. It just can't. Well, and you know, like we, we, you and I, you mentioned the tiger thing earlier, like you and I aren't constantly on the look for stray tigers in our day-to-day life. And most people listening probably aren't hopefully worrying about if they can eat a meal like but we do have so we don't have those those um, problems that our ancestors had but the world is so complex we have things that our ancestors couldn't even comprehend that we're worried about day in and day out so it's just different maybe right yeah i and i think it's different enough that our our brains are just i have to slowly evolve to be able to put up with it and deal with it but we're not there yet yeah I think that is part of our design it, mm-hmm. with through neuroplasticity is that we should be adjusting and we are, but mm-hmm. I don't think we can measure it over. I think it's going to take yeah. a thousand, thousand years of this to get yeah. there, but I think that'll be too late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hey, let's dig into the trauma thing a little bit more. So obviously, like you mentioned, some kids and some, I mean, some adults have pretty severe trauma, 
but all of us have some trauma, right? So like, how do, do you treat people differently kind of based on their, their depth or the kind of trauma they have? Or can you talk about just how those different levels might affect people differently? Yeah, well, you see right now you're mentioning the different levels, but also we have to throw in the other factor, which is every single person deals with stress differently. Okay. Yep. So there have been studies on twins, for example, and one twin and tw- twins who have af- twin girls who had suffered from sexual abuse in the same family from the same family member. Okay. Yeah. One actually handled it very well and flourished in life, mm-hmm. and one did not. One went okay. off the deep end and had drug addiction, alcohol, prostitution issues. Yeah. And so every single person deals with their stress and has a different level of resiliency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the girl that handled it well is an anomaly. Uh, scientists okay. say there's something like 3% of people would handle situations like that the way she did. Wow. She's just an outlier. Mm-hmm. Most people handle it like the other girl, which is why we can generalize and teach to a general public. But we do have to remember that there are different degrees and different, everyone's background experience is very important. Yeah. Because it, if you have a supportive grandmother, but an abusive dad, the supportive grandmother can offset that and help you build resiliency. Okay. So you're going to, so that person will probably deal with stress differently than this person who has nobody supporting them in their life. They are just go into complete helplessness and there's, it's much more difficult to deal with somebody who has no resiliency, but so these different levels that people handle it and the different kinds of trauma and stress all have to be factored into it. Mm -hmm. So that's why when, whenever anybody says this kid went through that, here's what we need to do about it. I would say it's not that simple. It's yeah. actually, we really have to do an evaluation and figure out all the factors that are affecting that kid right now. So we know what to do about it. Wow. Yeah. Or if we even should do anything about it, if the kid doesn't mm-hmm. even want help or feel like he needs help, maybe we step back a little bit and not force ourselves on. So there's all kinds of things. All There's yeah. many factors to consider when we're dealing with levels of stress. Okay. I would say that in this program, we're not really working towards helping the kid who has suffered single events. We all, we all suffer trauma driving down the freeway. If I see somebody covered in a blanket, I know he's been killed in a car crash. That that's traumatic to me. Yeah. And it will cause a reaction. It might even affect my whole day. Mm-hmm. If a five-year-old sees that and someone says, Oh man, that guy got killed in a car accident. That could have a traumatic effect on a five-year-old that lasts months. This kid may even have dreams about it and it could actually do a little bit of damage, but we also know that a single event, though it's going to cause a behavior change in school and some things that we can actually see, it's something that would eventually over time go away. Mm, So there probably doesn't need to be intervention, just understanding and care and support. Okay. But we're not dealing, we're not really working towards helping people who have normal traumatic events. We all have it. We all Mm -hmm. see things. We all lose people we love. Even pets we love, that's traumatic for kids. When kids mm-hmm. lose a pet, there's going to be a behavior change. You're going to see sure. it. Yeah. And we don't have to, and if a person, if it starts lasting more than four weeks, then obviously we do start to try to intervene a little bit because then that's not healthy. The mm-hmm. kids, the kids actually gone into a bad place. And yeah. that's why we have school psychiatrists to help with that. And that's why we have professionals to help with that. And I always tell my students, I am not a therapist. So if I see that and I notice the behavior, I'm going to go to the professionals and get advice. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to try to intervene on something that becomes serious in my classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're really looking at here is how do we recognize symptoms in a kid who's either suffering chronic stress or sy- systemic abuse or prolonged abuse? 
and there are the main kinds of abuses we're talking about are physical abuse, neglect, and home dysfunction are kind of the three things that cause prolonged stress in a kid. Yeah. What we're going to be doing in the second half of the program is talking about the kinds of symptoms, the kinds of things you might see when these things are happening. Yeah. And then what to do and how to react to it and how to be responsive. Well, okay. Can, that was my next, can you give us a sneak peek? So what, how do we, cause I know that we we've already talked about some kids, if they're stressed or hurt, just shut down, they're quiet. Some act out and are maybe are aggressive. So trauma is going to look extremely different kid to kid, right? So can you give us what's, what's the thousand foot view of how we can start seeing that? The first thing we need to do is pay attention because teachers don't teachers. And I, and I mentioned earlier, I think female teachers, naturally by their nature are better paying attention to behaviors than men are yeah more empathy so the first thing that we have to look at is emotions Mm -hmm. emotions are big um when when kids who are normally even keel suddenly start having anger outbursts Mm -hmm. or start doing strange things emotionally any types of emotions that are just anomalies they should be red flags to us yeah. Uh, and if it draws a red flag more than once, we can start thinking, is there something wrong? Is there something going on? And we need to start asking questions like that. And yeah. so it really starts out with get your evidence. Don't mm-hmm. ever jump to conclusions. One of the biggest problems teachers do is, OK, I'm, now I'm trauma informed. There's the big the big term in education right now is trauma informed. OK, this is not a trauma informed program. This is a trauma responsive program. Okay. Because it's one thing to know what to look for. It's quite another thing to know how to respond to it. Now, what do I do? And what yeah. can I do to help this kid rather than be a harm to this kid? Those are two different mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So a trauma-informed teacher might see a behavior and then re- react to it in a way that's improper. You know, if you call the police or child services because a kid had an emotional outburst in class, mm-hmm. and then you find out that it's nothing, you've just done more damage. Right. Like right. You might even do damage to yourself, to the community, to the family. There's so it's kind of a process of asking a lot of questions. And actually, for me personally, it's going to depend on the situation. If if I know the dad, maybe through Little League or something, that's going to be very different than if I have no idea who the parents are. Right. Because if I know the dad through Little League, then I'm going to start building a relationship with him and mm-hmm. start asking questions to him and say, why, you know, this is going on in school. What do you think is happening? Yeah. And you can learn a lot. Mm-hmm. through those kinds of conversations, probably more so than you can from the kid. Because yeah. if, if I ask the kid how he got that bruise on his arm, he doesn't want to talk about it. There's a red flag. Yeah. If I ask the kid, he says, oh, my brother and I were wrestling last night and I fell off the bed. And it's just, you can just tell when yeah. he's telling you the truth or lying about something. And, yeah. so, and that's where I think female teachers are really good at reading emotions and seeing truth. Yeah, and I think we male teachers tend to kind of gloss over it and just kind of not notice things like that. And that's where I teach the men in my classes. You really have to pay attention to emotions. Yeah. Most of us were taught to ignore your emotions. Yeah. You know, suppress right. your emotions. I wasn't allowed to cry in my house. My dad was a drill sergeant in the Marine Corps. Okay. So we didn't, we didn't show emotions. Yeah. And so as a teacher, I didn't want my kids showing emotions. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage them to suppress them. If I could go back and teach fifth grade again, like I did back when I started my career, everything would be different. Yeah. If a kid wanted to express their emotions, I would encourage it now. Yeah. And I'd want people to f- be free to express themselves and say what they want to say in a place that's safe and create an yeah. environment where they can really say anything they want. Even if stuff's going on at home, mm-hmm. I'm a safe place to share that with. 
So I, I love I love to hear more about that because we I think we've hit on this a little bit already. That you you said in your algebra class or whatever you've got kind of pods and you're just kind of walking around. We've kind of hit on that our bodies weren't designed to just sit still all day. So let's say we, you've got a blank canvas. You could design a school from scratch with no, you know, predetermined things. How, how what would you design a perfect classroom? How would you, how would you design? It? <laughs> you know, you've opened up a whole new podcast. We could do, we could actually do a series on this <laughs> because I've actually got four or five designs in my head for what I think a classroom and a school should look like. Okay. But I'll just give you an example of, well, first of all, let's, let's, if I step back and look at the school, I still, for the life of me, can't understand why we put kids in at age five. Why is it based on age? Okay. So our whole, today's school system, the one you and I both went through, is mm-hmm. based on the industrial age. Yep. Because during the industrial age, all the way up until 1840, they needed to produce people that could work in factories. Right. Well, education was like a conveyor belt. Yeah, everybody learned the same thing at the same mm-hmm. pace, and you either did it, learned it, and graduated with the same knowledge, or you didn't. Yeah, that's right. So we were producing robots to do work. Yep, that has not changed. Mm-hmm. We still go in at age five, progress through our everything. Even in, if you go into any, I've probably been in three hundred classrooms, and it drives me nuts to see a math teacher or a history teacher or anybody teaching one thing at one level and everybody has to learn it the same way. Yeah. In fact, they have to learn it the teacher's way, which is right. also nuts. Or the state's way. Or, or the state's you know. way. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. Don't get me into accreditation because right. everything, including what we can do in college. Yep. But um, it's just, I just, I just kind of cringe and I just think, man, as a math teacher, there's so much you could do to beat the system. Yeah. You know, it, when I teach my intro to teaching class, I always tell them how to how to do what's best for kids and not get caught, because really, that's <laughs> what you have to do to be a good teacher. Wow. OK. You can't get caught doing the what's best for kids learning. Otherwise, they're going to tell you to change. They're mm-hmm. going to tell you, you know, get your kids out of groups. They're being too loud. Why are you letting them debate about math? They can hear you down the hall. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, give me some barriers then, because my kids are actually learning and or I'll go outside on the playground and we'll do it. Yeah. So, so I think self-directed, taking kids' interests into mind and actually letting them progress at their own paces. So you're not going to have kids in a fifth grade class who are all 11 years old. You may Mm -hmm. have some eight-year-olds, you may have some 13-year-olds because they actually need to be at a place where they can learn at a threshold just above their understanding. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And then I would see teachers, if I walked into a classroom, I would see teachers not doing much more than coaching, Mm -hmm. not telling kids what to know and how to know it but giving them things that interest them and challenging situations for them to figure it out that are based on real life situations so that they can actually be productive citizens when they get out. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we don't teach at that level. So Bloom's, if we look at Bloom's autonomy and if we look at levels of learning, creative, creative activity is up at the top. Okay. Basic facts is the very bottom. Mm-hmm. We've all went through a system that taught us basic facts. We, you learn this stuff, show me that you can reproduce it, regurgitate it to me through homework. Yeah. Then I'll give you a quiz at the end of the week. We'll get, we'll have it. You'll forget it within two or three days, but that's okay. You can cram for it at the end of the year for the final and then forget it. Then it doesn't matter if you forget it. That's yep. how we all went through school. That's exactly right. Yep. So when, so I want to see kids actually exploring, figuring stuff out on their own. So when they make a discovery, when they make a math discovery, I can say, so some mathematician got credit for what you just did. You're thinking like that mathematician. Hmm. You actually figured that out the same way he did originally. And now that sticks forever. They're yeah, learning that's... math in a way that their brain actually remembers it differently. Yeah. 
because it also, as I mentioned, causes dopamine and serotonin and all these great chemicals to flow when they make that discovery on their own. They're so happy. They're so proud of themselves. They want yep. more of it. Yep. And so give me more. I want to figure something else out. And you give that's them another- smart. Why did we do this? Yeah, that seems so obvious to me that we, if, when we know and understand how our brains work, of course, we're going to teach differently. That's brilliant. Well, doesn't it make sense? You know that when I teach my algebra class, I don't tell other faculty what I do because I don't want them to know why 100% of my students pass the class, which mm -hmm. has never been done before. They've had a really low pass rate in this class because it's remedial algebra. Okay. I just tell them that, you know, they ask me, do you want to teach another math class? Do you want another math class? And I have to keep saying, no, I'm doing too much in the M ed, but nobody ever stops to ask me, what are you doing differently? Mm -hmm. They just assume I'm in there lecturing and getting yeah. lucky. Mm -hmm. or that maybe I'm encouraging them or doing something, but they had never really wanted to say, what's your methodology? What are you doing? What yeah. are you doing that I can apply to my class? Nobody asked me that. Wow. Mm. That's what's bizarre to me is nobody wants to change what they're doing. Yeah. Cause it's hard. It's hard to change. It right? is. We all grew up listening to lectures. We all went through college listening to lectures and doing yeah. well on tests. Otherwise mm -hmm. we wouldn't have been able to become professors. That's here's that's, yeah. this is the tragic part. Yeah. We're so good at playing the game of school that we become professors. Yeah. And then we just, keep doing what we've always done and the way we learn it. And we expect everybody else to do it our way because we were good at it. And if they can't, they are the failures and the ones that are really good at it, they become the next professors. Yeah. It's a perpetual problem. It is. So if my, I am always afraid that my supervisor is going to walk into my algebra class and say, I'm paying you for this. What in the mm -hmm. world are you doing right now? Mm -hmm. And I would have to say, well, that group's doing this, that group's doing that, that group's doing this. And this group is learning this. And then, so what do you do? I wait for questions. And then I, yeah. and then I don't give them answers. In fact, some of that group over there is doing math. I can't even understand myself. So wow. they, all I do is just kind of pretend and give them some harder stuff to work on. Well, and see my, the brain chemistry is working because now I want to take all your classes. Like I want, that's how I want to learn that way. That's a good way to do it. Hey, you, since, uh, since we've done this, now you can come audit any class you ever want to. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Okay. David, we're running out of time. I could talk to you for days probably, but one thing on here you talk about, so I'm sure we have teachers listening, but we also have a lot of church leaders listening, yeah. a lot of pastors, a lot of small group leaders, men's ministry, women's ministry, whatever. So how can we, we'll, we'll probably kind of start to wrap up with this. So how, what, how can churches take this and do church more effectively? I, I, I got to say that that's probably the most difficult question you've asked yet. <laughs> and I get that question quite a bit. And, and people are always, they're a little, they're a little dumbfounded that I don't have a great answer for that because it's such a tough question. Yeah. So how can, how can churches do things differently? Well, I guess that I'd have to say, well, it depends on your church, depends on the kid. It depends on what you're seeing. It depends on the situation because it's hard to give an answer that's not dangerous. Mm -hmm. so, so for example, if I do give an answer, I say, here's what I would do, but I haven't read the situation and I don't know it. Yeah. I would probably misdiagnose because who knows where the information is coming from. Mm -hmm. Who knows what, where people are getting their information? Who, who knows who's making false judgments against a family or what's going on in, in a kid's life? Every situation is so different that when people ask me a question like that, I say, do you have an hour? Because I have a bunch of questions I need to ask you first before I can even come close. Yeah. And then I'd have to come do my own observations if you want me to actually help you come up with a plan for what your church can be doing differently to yeah. either train to help people recognize or to help support people in need. Mm -hmm. Those are the, those are the kinds of things you leave to the professionals. Yeah. And so it becomes dangerous when people like me who are not licensed therapists start giving advice on, mm -hmm. on for questions like that. Yeah. 
And so, so what's funny is people, because I've designed this program and because I teach in this program, people just assume that I've got all the answers for things like that. Mm-hmm. And so they do. So everybody's like, Hey, go ask him. He's running a whole program about that stuff. Yeah. And so they're not very happy when I say there's not an answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> right. That is very individual. And, and your best bet is, do, do you have a licensed therapist or do you have a social worker in your school? Do you have people in your church that actually deal with things like this? Yeah. Go to them and then you can bring me into the conversation. I wouldn't mind sitting down and meeting with you guys and giving you some feedback, but uh-huh. I, I'm not the expert know-all be-all to give answers like that. And for me to even assume that I can, sometimes that would just come out of arrogance and I would have to be careful because I could do more damage by giving an answer. Yeah. And so I know that's probably not the answer you want. It's not the answer a lot of people want, but right. with this kind of stuff, you do have to be very careful and yeah. you can't make knee jerk reactions or answers or conclusions to any of this stuff. It's, it's right. It's important stuff. But it sounds, sounds like maybe just some really basic tangible things, even simple things like paying attention to emotions yeah. may, may not come naturally to everybody. Maybe churches need to have someone on staff who is trained in counseling and therapy. That probably would be helpful. So there, there's probably nuggets like that we could probably pick up on, right? Yeah. And it's so, for example, if somebody asked me a question like that, my question would be, so let's say that somebody came to me from the church and said, hey, I've got this kid. What should I do about this kid? I think he's being abused by his uncle. Okay. Yeah. I would say, first of all, what evidence do you have? Because mm-hmm. is it a gut feeling? Is it yeah. something that you just think has happened? Did you hear it from another source? Mm-hmm. What's the evidence? Yeah. Because you don't want to start intervening or doing anything until you've got tangible evidence and right. people that actually want intervention. Because mm-hmm. if, if I start asking the kid questions, and he's like, why are you even asking me this stuff? Well, then it can yeah. become even worse. You're making a weird situation out of nothing for a kid based on hearsay. Yeah. So I, I, my first question is, oh, where are you getting your evidence and what evidence do you see? And if there's enough evidence, guess what? We have a responsibility, not just as adults, but in this program, everyone that graduates from this program is going to have a legal obligation to report anything that they see as evidence. Okay. Yeah. If a kid from church came up to me and said, and I say, hey, why do you have a strap mark across your face? And he says, my dad hit me really hard with the belt last night and missed and got me on the face. Mm-hmm. I would actually probably go talk to the dad first and mm-hmm. just find, hey, was that an accident? If I saw something else within a, a reasonable t- amount of time, I would actually go to the authorities mm-hmm. and report it anonymously. Yeah. yeah. And the dad may even know who did it, but mm-hmm. I've got an obligation to report anything that I see as evidence. Yeah. In fact, if the kid came up to me and said, man, my dad got mad. And every time he gets mad, he hits me with the belt. And look what he did this time. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, that's evidence. I mean, right. I, there's, no, there's no point in me going out and doing an investigation. I have an obligation to go report that and protect that kid. Yep. Yep. We as adults have obligations to protect these kids. And that's what this program is here for. Mm-hmm. How, do we sh- how do we teach teachers and social workers and policemen how to protect the kids that are in their care? Yeah. We started with this, and I mean, we can end with it too, but I'm just so glad we're in this time where we can actually have these conversations. It seems like things are, there's so many problems in the world and so much pain, but like we are talking about it. We're finding ways to deal with it. I'm just so grateful because those kids deserve better treatment, better lives. So that's so important. Yeah. Well, here's the, here's my favorite thing about this program. I should have started with this as my disclaimer. I told I'm going to end it with a disclaimer. Okay. I'm ready. I don't consider myself an expert in trauma. Mm-hmm. I, I actually consider myself 
a neo neuroscientist and I'll never be a neuroscientist because there's so much to know. I can't know it all. In fact, yep. I'll be studying for the rest of my life and the yep. information is going to change so much. I won't be able to keep up with it. Yeah. So I have been given the green light to assemble a dream team of experts. And mm. so I've got three or four fantastic professors who I consider trauma informed and trauma responsive experts. And so I can turn over the good stuff to them. Yeah. So that's one of the, one of the, one of the main things I learned in my leadership program at USC was if you want to be a good leader, surround yourself with good people that will yep. make you look like a good leader. Yep. That's what I've done with this program. I've just surrounded myself with really good people. And anyone that comes into this pro program is going to leave a different person. Yeah. Not only because of the people that are teaching them, but because of the fact that we've got a spiritual development aspect where they're practicing some of these things that we're teaching them to do with their kids. Yeah. So we've already had some stuff come out that I've had to say, Hey, you probably should see a therapist about that. Mm. Maybe you, maybe you should get some professional help for the stuff that you're finding about yourself. Yeah. Because you can't help others if you can't help yourself first. Yeah. Yeah. This has been awesome. Dr. David Stevens. I would love to keep talking to you. Maybe we will have to do a part two sometime because I feel like we could go deeper and deeper. So thank you for this. It pains me as a Sterling grad, but I want to come take a, take a Tabor class. So everyone go sign up for Dr. Davis class because it sounds awesome. Yeah, why don't you come join the program? You would have fun. Oh, it's, it's tempting. Need, it's very interesting. We have a part two. We should do a follow-up and just do random questions and have fun talking. Yeah, like we I should said, I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, our time went fast today. So is our time off? Dog on it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll do part two sometime. Okay, so good. Well, David, thank you again so much. Really appreciate all this. I guess real quick, if someone wants to learn more, just tabor.edu, there's probably a link somewhere. Where else can they learn more about your program? Yeah, and actually, they can actually contact me directly. And cool. if they just shoot me an email at David Stevens, all one word, David Stevens at tabor.edu, I would love to talk to anybody. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for the great work you're doing and for your time today. This has been awesome, David. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. An exciting new lineup of LEAD cohorts is coming in September 2021. LEAD cohorts are free online meeting places for small groups of MB pastors, leaders, or anyone interested in learning more about a specific topic. In other words, LEAD cohorts are for you. New this fall are cohorts about how to hold strong convictions while having a loving posture, soul care, preaching, and teaching Colossians and Hebrews, conversations with missionaries, and more. To see our lineup or to register, visit www.usmb.org backslash lead dash cohorts. Well, once again, my thanks to Dr. David Stevens. I really enjoyed that conversation, as you could probably tell, and I hope you did as well. And man, another thing that I thought about is just the importance of teachers. And I know our communities probably have a lot of teachers in our churches. Maybe you're a teacher and the, a good teacher really can just make or break um, a kid's life. And so that was just something else I took away from this was just how important our teachers are, how they deserve to have really good training so they can pick up on some of these things because they really can make a kid's life so much better. So if you're a teacher or if you help out with your church in various ways, man, just leadership is just so important. And so I'm glad that we have tools like these where we can learn together and take advantage of some of these new technologies, new information that we're learning and hopefully grow and help meet people's needs a little bit more effectively. So again, if you're interested, I encourage you to check out more information about this program on the Tabor's website and see if it might be a good fit for you to take a next step in whatever your career might be. Okay, well, thanks again for joining us for today. I hope you have a great rest of your week and we will look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Lead Pods. Thanks for listening to Lead Pods. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to our show wherever you're listening today. 
Learn more by visiting usmb.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll see you next time as we learn more practical tools to increase our impact together.